Hey guys, welcome to the Men of Valor podcast. On Sundays and in our harvest groups, we're starting a new study in the Gospel of John, looking at the seven signs of Jesus. If you're not in a harvest group, this is a perfect time to join one. We get together in groups all throughout the week, groups for men, couples, women, co-ed, groups that meet at Harvest, in homes, online, and we meet to discuss and to study God's Word, to encourage one another, to point each other to Jesus. And we do this because we believe that discipleship happens together. You can go to harvest.church forward slash groups to sign up and to get more information. Well, imagine a world without signs. We rely on signs every day. For almost every situation, you wouldn't know what to do, where to go, or how to go about something. It would be chaos. Whatever you're doing right now, as you listen to this, look around. Chances are you see some kind of sign, some kind of description that gives information. On the streets while driving, in the stores while shopping, in the house while organizing. Signs give us information to get us to a destination. The sign helps you find what you want and where you need to go to get there. When I was in college, I took a class on spiritual formation, learning how we grow in Christ. And part of that class was to go on a weekend retreat up in the mountains of Idlewild. I had some classmates that were from out of state, so they weren't familiar with the area. Everyone in the class provided their own transportation, and we were to arrive on a Friday night. Well, two people who drove together didn't show up. It was getting late on Friday night, so the professor called them, and they said they were on their way, but that they'd been driving for a long time. And, well, Idlewild, it's not that far away. So the professor asked, well, where are you? Again, they didn't know the area. But they said, well, we just saw a sign that says we're almost to Arizona. Arizona? They missed the sign and the freeway exit for Idlewild in Banning, and they kept driving on the 10 freeway pretty much to Blythe on the Arizona border. It turned out to be like a four-hour detour, all because they weren't paying attention, they missed the sign, and almost ended up in another state. Crazy, right? What's the lesson? Signs are telling us something, and we must pay attention. Now, with the sign, we recognize that the sign isn't the point. It's what the sign points to. We may get out and take pictures at a sign when we cross into a new state or at a national park, but no one looks back on their trip to that location and thinks of the welcome sign itself. They think of the actual place and what makes it special. The sign isn't the destination, it's what it leads to. And the same is true for signs in the Bible. The signs point to something beyond themselves. Biblical signs point us to spiritual realities and to truth. The signs point to the greater reality of the sign giver. We see this in the Old Testament and in the ministry of the apostles. We see signs that were both miraculous and mundane, both supernatural and through human servants. The signs authenticated the messenger, like Moses and the signs and wonders of the Exodus, the prophets and their unique communication of God's judgments, the apostles and the spreading of the message of the gospel. People would see the signs and see that the message is true and believe in the one who sent the messenger, who is the Lord. The signs give authenticity to the message so that people would believe. And that's exactly what we see in the Gospel of John. John provides a purpose statement of his gospel in chapter 20, verses 30 to 31. 
Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That is the unique focus of this gospel, which is why it's often called the book of signs. The signs lead to belief, and belief leads to life. The signs authenticate the ministry and the message of the Messiah. And that's what makes Jesus unique. The signs just didn't testify that his message is divine, but to the greater reality that he himself is the divine message. Not just that he truly proclaims the word of God, but that he is truly the word of God made flesh. He is the divine word of God as we see in John chapter 1. These signs point to the greatest reality that Jesus is the Son of God. The signs display his glory and demonstrate his power and show that he is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Jesus declared himself as the Son of God and his signs proved that true. Which is why he says in John 10, verses 37 to 38, If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. The seven signs of Jesus all appear in the first half of the gospel. First, we know these are signs because the gospel specifically calls them signs. So John is clearly highlighting them and linking them all together. And each of these signs were performed in public where people witnessed them. As John 20, 30 says, Jesus did many other signs, but these seven were specifically chosen. It's a sevenfold argument, explanation, emphasis given to people to see who Jesus is and what he has done. And of course, the first one must be pretty important, right? What would it be? Where would it take place? Surprisingly, it's at a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and it's recorded in John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. So let's see what it's all about. It's so interesting to think that out of all places and times for Jesus' first sign to take place, it's at a wedding. I think he's still doing this miracle today because, well, I'm married, and that's a miracle. Joking aside, it's a reminder of the sanctity of marriage. And as we'll see even further throughout the rest of Scripture, that marriage itself is a signpost pointing to the greater reality of marriage, which is a picture of Christ and his church. The narrative begins by simply describing how there was a wedding. The couple and the family isn't named, but Mary, the mother of Jesus, is there. And then verse 2, Jesus is invited with his disciples. Now, most people today are trying to cut their wedding list, and it can be an awkward process. But here, they invite 12 of Jesus' newer friends, likely because in that context, the wedding was a community-wide event. Nothing's really described about this wedding. Knowing the historical and cultural backgrounds of Jewish weddings in the first century, we can assume that the wedding was lengthy, as they often lasted for a week. Like today, it consisted of tons of planning and a great celebration. And like we experienced, there was also a problem. Well, they ran out of wine. Now, I've seen the food take way too long at weddings, or people ramble way too long in a speech, or the cake actually get eaten by ants. True story. But beyond just an inconvenience, this situation of running out of wine in that culture would have brought shame and embarrassment to the bride and groom and their family. 
Hospitality was extremely important to someone's social standing in that time. And so this was a big deal for the wedding to run out of wine. So the narrative immediately reports a problem, and Mary tells Jesus about that problem. Jesus responds in a more formal manner. Instead of addressing Mary as mother, he says woman, like using the word ma'am or lady. And he says, what does this have to do with me, he asked. Well, apparently a whole lot. The issue wasn't the wine, it was the timing. This interaction seems to represent a turning point in Jesus' public ministry. This response can also be translated, what do you and I have in common? Jesus was ultimately communicating to his mother that his ultimate purpose was to fulfill the plans and purposes of the Father in heaven, and that although he is her son, he is ultimately her Lord. And he responded by saying, my hour has not yet come. Jesus uses this term of the hour several times in the Gospel of John. What does it refer to? It's the hour of his crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, the hour when his earthly ministry would be completed, when Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world. And here, we see the public ministry is just beginning. It was not the hour yet, but the start of his signs would all point to that hour. And it all began at this wedding at Cana in Galilee. As John says in verse 11, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. And that's the point of this sign, the manifestation of the glory of the son of God. And it led to belief. The signs of Jesus are about the glory of Jesus. Now, glory, it's a familiar word, but what exactly does it mean? It's been said that the glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of God's manifold perfections. The glory of God is the manifest beauty of his holiness. It's the going public of his holiness. And that's exactly what we see here in this text. Jesus manifested his glory. It went public. His power, his greatness, his holiness, who he is on display for the watching world. The Apostle John describes this truth in John chapter 1, verse 14, when summarizing Jesus' ministry. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Oh, think about it. So much would come to mind when the apostles reflect on how they saw the glory of Jesus, his teaching and miracles, the transfiguration, the crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, and... Well, that one wedding they also went to, where the first sign started. So what did they see? They saw Jesus meet a real need, and they saw Jesus bring about real joy. But they ultimately saw this great truth in the turning of water to wine, that for the believer, the best is yet to come, that the old is passing away, and Jesus is making all things new. Mary simply said to Jesus, they have no wine. This is simply a fact, a problem at a party. Mary says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Well, that's pretty straightforward, and that will preach. The same thing should be true of all of us. We should do whatever Jesus says. But what does the wine, the wedding, the celebration, and the joy all point to? As one commentator, Andreas Kostenberger says, the sign evoked Old Testament images of the Messiah as bridegroom ushering in an age of messianic joy and celebration. See, they ran out of wine, 
But there's a greater theological truth. It was the end of the Old Covenant Judaism. The Messiah had arrived. It was the dawn of the New Covenant. And Jesus is showing how he makes all things new. Verse 6 shows this connection. There were six stone water jars that were there for the Jewish rites of purification. And Jesus specifically chose those to use in this miracle. Why is this important? Jesus created wine from ceremonial purification water, which was a symbol of the old covenant. That water ultimately failed to cleanse people from sin, but a new way is coming in the Messiah. The pots became vessels for new wine. This was spoken about in the Old Testament, such as in Isaiah chapter 25, 6 to 9, which describes fine wine as a sign of the Messiah's victory. And as we see at this wedding, they are shocked at the quality and quantity of what Jesus did, that the best wine was last. The old covenant of Judaism had come to an end, like running out of wine, and the new covenant of Jesus had arrived, filled to the brim full of grace and truth. We later see how Jesus shed his blood on the cross and told his disciples to remember his death, where he took a cup of wine and said, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. We look forward to a future wedding where Jesus is the host, not the guest. It's the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation chapter 19, where the church is the bride of Jesus and he is the bridegroom. And we celebrate because he has made all things new. This first sign at the wedding in Cana points to the future wedding to come. Jesus manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. And the same is true for us. But what about the rest at the wedding? Did they see his glory? Did they taste of his goodness? Don't ignore the sign and miss the destination. Brothers, as we study the signs of Jesus, may we be reminded to not only see the signs, but ultimately to see the Savior, what the signs are leading and pointing to, which is belief and life in his name. And as John says, when we see his glory, that he's full of grace and truth, from his fullness, we all receive grace upon grace. God bless.